The Mark Stein Show. And now, here's Mark. The last weekend of October, All Hallows' Eve, when many children like to go door-to-door with amusing masks over their regular masks. Thank you to those who tuned in to see me guest host for Nigel Farage and GB News, my first presenting stint on UK telly in many decades. Because of that, we've been a bit Brito-centric in recent days. So let me catch up with a few US headlines that caught my eye. Fairly depressing headlines, unless you're one of those who enjoys seeing a great nation determined to go down the geopolitical toilet as the greatest laughing stock of all time. China has the largest surface fleet. And thanks to American generosity, the Taliban has the ninth best armed military on the planet. But the United States still leads the world in the length of its motorcades. Joe Biden has arrived in Rome with an 85-car motorcade for a visit to Europe for a climate change summit in which he'll tell you, you need to fly less. 85 cars, every one of which has to be flown in to Rome and then on to Glasgow. Imagine that. Imagine the carbon footprint, not of Joe Biden, but just imagine the carbon footprint of one of his cars. Uh, That's believed to be a world record, 85 cars, because no other world leader has wanted to look that big an ass. And if he did, it's much quicker to walk around with a neon sign on your head saying world's biggest wanker. 85 cars. I'm old enough to remember when uh, Barack Obama made do with 40 cars and the first George Bush made do with 25, and I made jokes about it then. If you've got a car front and back, there's a sporting chance you've got half a dozen guys who'll take a bullet for you. If you've got 85 cars, they're overpaid tosspots on a junket looking forward to the quote, Cartagena hookers, a phrase the U.S. Secret Service planted in the English language. Every one of those 85 cars has to be flown in. This isn't a Democrat-Republican thing. This ought to be a not wanting to advertise my country's impotence through the world's most flaccid motorcade thing. Another bad joke. The United States Navy can't put out a fire. I urge you to read the official report on the loss of the warship, the USS Bonhomme Richard, Not to the Chinese, not to the North Koreans, not to the Iranians, but to a fire set by a disaffected sailor whose love for a lady sailor went unrequited. That's not the worst part. Lots of things catch fire, but total top-to-toe failure in the chain, including five admirals, because admirals are to the Navy as motorcades are to the White House, and this is before you get into all the exciting new tranny admirals. Uh, total top-to-toe failure in the chain, including five admirals. Don't know how many of them were transgender. Total top-to-toe failure uh, resulted in a system incapable of putting out a fire. Quote, The investigation into the fire aboard Bonhomme Richard, overseen by former U.S. Third Fleet Commander Vice Admiral Scott Conn, He ranks lower 
than the transgender admiral, I believe, because uh, she's a four-star admiral. Uh, uh, anyway, this, uh, what is it? The investigation into the fire aboard Bonham Richard uh, found that the two-year-long $249 million maintenance period rendered the ship's crew unprepared to fight the fire, the service says was set by a crew member. Although the fire was started by an act of arson, the ship was lost due to an inability to extinguish the fire. In the end, they had to call the San Diego Fire Department, but unfortunately they left it a bit late to call. So two billion bucks, two billion bucks for the ship, plus another quarter billion on that two-year maintenance. Up in smoke. Are the, are the pom-pom girls of the American right still uh, doing uh, quizzes on call us up and tell us who your favourite superhero are? There are none. They're only ordinary non-superheroes, and if you're lucky, they know how to put up a f- put out a fire, which the United States Navy apparently no longer does. In news from the dirty, stinking, rotten, corrupt federal justice system, the U.S. attorney in the dirty, stinking, rotten, corrupt federal district of the District of Columbia has dropped a case against two pro-life students arrested last year for chalking "Black Preborn Lives Matter" on the sidewalk. Good for them, because that's true. The pro-life students were charged with, quote, defacement of public property. They pointed out that chalk does not meet the definition of defacement and a sidewalk does not meet the definition of public property. If If you believe in a land of laws... Those are the laws of the land. So the dirty, stinking, rotten, corrupt federal prosecutors then did what the dirty, stinking, rotten, corrupt federal prosecutors always do. They made the process the punishment. The dirty, stinking, rotten, corrupt and evil hacks of the DOJ spent 14 months moving to reschedule and re-reschedule and re-re-reschedule the hearing. And the dirty, stinking, rotten, corrupt court allowed them to get away with it. Now, a day... Before the finally scheduled hearing, the dirty, stinking, rotten, corrupt U.S. attorney has, quote, quietly, quietly dismissed his own case. The students' names are Warner DePriest and Erica Caporaletti, and they deserve credit for not buckling to these federal thugs, these federal goons, these un- I would, well what we would once have called un-American goons if the fact that this kind of conduct hadn't now become standard operating procedure because they have the advantage, as with the 85-car motorcade and the two billion up-in-smoke warship of an unlimited budget. By the way, this case was brought by the dirty, stinking, rotten, corrupt US Department of Justice last summer. That's to say a Republican Justice Department, Bill Barr's Justice Department, President Trump's Justice Department, at least in constitutional theory, according to that constitution that the pom-pom girls are always going on about. Uh, But elections are not much point if you are electing the head of an executive branch whom the executive branch just ignores while it goes on its own merry way. Okay, I'm getting... Too worked up by this, so let's move on to what ought to be the biggest story. The United States government is planning on paying $450,000. This is a report from the Wall Street Journal. The United States is planning on paying $450,000 per person to families of illegal aliens separated at the border 
and who claim that when they broke into the country, quote, the government subjected them to lasting psychological trauma. Uh, well, speaking as a legal immigrant, I certainly hope so. Any immigrant who has made the mistake of doing it by the book and filling in all the paperwork will be familiar with, quote, lasting psychological trauma. Ask Dina Gilby a British subject then lawfully resident in New Jersey. Her husband died rescuing colleagues in the World Trade Center, and within days, Bozo the bureaucrat had sent her and her children a deportation order because her immigration status had died with her late spouse. I'm glad to have played a small part in getting that to Tony Blair's attention, and he got it to Bush's. But that is as nothing, apparently, compared to breaking into a country and being treated as a lawbreaker by the officials you encounter. So each of these traumatized undocumented will now be getting 450 grand from the feds. If you're in Haiti and you're thinking you'd like a piece of the refugee action, this story will be distilled throughout Central and Southern America as, hey, if you get to the United States, Joe Biden's going to give you half a million bucks. So if you think the traffic's a little light at Del Rio, just give it a few weeks. 450000 per person is, after all, quite a lot in Haiti. Uh, a matter of fact, it's quite a lot in most non-Nancy Pelosi-inhabited parts of America. Uh, the per capita income in my county in New Hampshire is 37 grand per year. Uh, so what is that? 450,000. That's the equivalent of 12 years salary in one lump sum. Would come in, you know, pretty useful. Uh, but forget it. You're not eligible because you're American. Uh, to reprise my old line... I used to worry there would be a civil war. Now I worry there won't be. To return to my chums at GB News, Neil Oliver did a powerful and impassioned monologue a week ago, which included the memorable line that across the West, the people are in an abusive relationship with their governments. That is certainly true of the American people and what purports to be their government. Mark Stein's Poem of the Week. Well, it's Halloween, so I suppose we ought to have something vaguely ghostly. This one I like mainly because its title has contemporary resonances. The Lake of the Dismal Swamp. It's by Thomas More, uh, who these days is less remembered for his poetry than for his alleged role in the destruction of his friend Lord Byron's scandalous memoirs. Uh, on the other hand, if you're partial to a certain kind of uh, sentimental shamrock-hued ballad, you may recognize Mr. Moore's Last Rose of Summer and the Minstrel Boy. He was an Irish nationalist opposed to the 1801 Act of Union, but it happened anyway, so finding himself at a bit of a loose end, in 1803 he accepted a position as Registrar of the Admiral prize court in Bermuda and set sail for Hamilton uh, via Norfolk, Virginia. And he decided to stay a few weeks in Norfolk as guest of the British consul, Colonel Hamilton. And it was in Virginia that he heard the tale of the dismal swamp, of a man whose great love is dead, and so he has lost his mind, and in his ravings determines she is lost in the dismal swamp, and he will go there to save her. And instead of saving her, he too is lost 
in the dismal swamp where he is occasionally glimpsed as ghostly apparition. And by now you're probably thinking, wow, this is the greatest allegory I've ever heard. A man's great love, America, is lost in a dismal swamp near Virginia. So he goes there to save her and he just gets lost in the swamp too, where he is occasionally glimpsed voting for a $37 trillion infrastructure bill uh, with amnesty for 7 billion illegal aliens attached to it. Well, maybe, or maybe it's as Thomas More understood it. And the Great Dismal Swamp is a large wilderness area centred on nearby Lake Drummond. Uh, where the ghostly apparitions are most likely foxfire, a luminescent glow of burning methane escaping from decomposing vegetation and smouldering peat. So that's what may be causing all this global warming. Whatever, the poem works either way, written in 1803 in Colonel Hamilton's big brick house on Main Street in Norfolk, Virginia, by Thomas More, The Lake of the Dismal Swamp. They made her a grave too cold and damp for a soul so warm and true. And she's gone to the lake of the dismal swamp where all night long by a firefly lamp she paddles her white canoe. And her firefly lamp I soon shall see and her paddle I soon shall hear. Long and loving our life shall be and I'll hide the maid in a cypress tree when the footstep of death is near. Away to the dismal swamp he speeds, his path was rugged and sore. Through tangled juniper beds of reeds, through many a fen where the serpent feeds, and man never trod before. And when on the earth he sunk to sleep, if slumber his eyelids knew, he lay where the deadly vine doth weep its venomous tear, and nightly steep the flesh with blistering dew. And near him the she-wolf stirred the brake, and the copper-snake breathed in his ear, till he starting cried from his dream awake, Oh, when shall I see the dusky lake and the white canoe of my dear? He saw the lake, and a meteor bright quick over its surface played. Welcome, he said, my dear one's light, and the dim shore echoed for many a night the name of the death-cold maid, till he hollowed a boat of the birchen bark which carried him off from shore. Far, far he followed the meteor spark. The wind was high and the clouds were dark, and the boat returned no more. But oft from the Indian hunter's camp, this lover and maid so true, a scene at the hour of midnight damped, crossed the lake by a firefly lamp, and paddle their white canoe. A poem from Me to You by Thomas More, The Lake of the Dismal Swamp, written in Norfolk, Virginia, which in 1803 was recovering from both a hurricane and a yellow fever epidemic. The Irish nationalists did not care for the place and wrote that, quote, it abounds in dogs, in Negroes and in Democrats. If it's any consolation to insulted Virginians on the eve of this gubernatorial election, he found Bermuda even duller. And Thomas More was soon back on the North American mainland.
Mark's Mailbox is on the air. Patricia, a Mark Stein Club member from Virginia. A lot of Virginia on today's show. I'm always happy to have a lot of Virginia. Patricia's there. She's a Mark Stein Club member and she says, Hello, Mr. Stein. While watching the GB News Farage program that you guest hosted, I had a question to ask of your Peter rep. That would be Dr. Karis Bennett of uh, Peter, the animal rights uh, group. But I couldn't find the email address in time, says Patricia. If everyone worldwide exchanged their beef burgers for bean burgers, wouldn't the excess human flatulence from the fibre-rich meat substitute more than make up for whatever savings there might be from cow flatulence? Or is that the idea, to then cull the herd of human population after realising that's the case. Well, as, always, as I always say, I showed uh, Dr. Ben at that picture of the um, cows uh, grazing in whatever German university field that is, where researchers had saddled them up uh, with these uh, lederhosen-type harnesses in order to measure their flatulence. And I felt sorry for these cows because they look awfully undignified wandering around in their flatulence harnesses uh, so that their flatulence can be monitored 24-7. And when this first story first came up, which I think was on Rush, uh, whatever it was now, seven or eight years ago, I said, you're deluding yourself if you think this is only going to be confined to cows. These poor cows, they're just the pilot program for the flatulence harness. Then it's you. Um, a follow-up question, says Patricia, would be, does Peter advocate for euthanizing all existing beef cattle herds in order to reduce their flatulence quotient, even though they are sentient animals that are, quote, able to recognize 50 other of their bovine friends? That's the point that Dr. Bennett made. They're, they're very socialized creatures. They have communities. Uh, and it's she's, perfect, she's perfectly correct that they know dozens of their fellow cow. You may have difficulty if you see a herd of Holstein grazing in a field in being able to tell Daisy from Ermintrude, but Daisy knows which cow is Ermintrude and Ermintrude knows which cow is Daisy. And the fact is that there's no need for cows once uh, they are no longer farm animals who are essentially kept for milk and for beef. So in other words, once you get rid of their purpose as human food, there's no reason to have them around and they don't and they're like uh, the cattle in uh, as the example that HG Wells gave of the Eloy in the town machine in the time machine. They're like the cattle in the field, uh, too sweet and trusting to defend themselves against predators. So either there's going to be some big bovine genocide in in which these creatures are all gotten rid of to appease the flatulence gods, or they're going to be picked off by uh, predators because there's no point in farmers trying to protect them anymore. But uh, So Patricia says, I simply do not see how there can be a humane PETA-approved approach to the issue, especially if it's flatulence neutral. 
Yeah, I don't think they've thought that through. What I find interesting is that this is presented as a public health thing, but the health is not humanity. The health is for the planet. So in other words, uh, humanity has to change its diet, not to make humanity healthier, which is certainly grounds for, especially in the Western world, but to make the planet healthier. And you are correct to say that uh, once diets get more, certainly with vegans, my, uh, one of my, uh, I'm trying to be a bit non-specific here, but one of my uh, children uh, had uh, shared a room uh, with a vegan uh, for a while. Uh, and uh, all I can say is, uh, yeah, the, 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 it's not a myth, the myth about uh, uh, all this um, anyway i don't want to, i don't want to spend the whole show on uh, on flatulence but listen you know if you want to do something for humanity what's what's killing humanity what's certainly killing uh, people in the western world is eating is eating processed food which isn't really food at all whether it's so called uh, unhealthy things like cheeseburgers and fries or whether it's the healthy stuff a lot of the healthy stuff uh, uh, has the affect of healthy it presents as healthy uh, you know when one thinks about granola or yogurt but certainly in the united states all the granola and the yogurt is is full of sugar uh, as everything is if you wanted to talk i mean I I'm being ahead of the game on this. If you pick up a copy of Mark's sign from head to toe, you will find in there a piece from 1998 in which in which I worried about the increasingly unhealthy uh, and obese Westerners would be able to compete with all these wiry Orientals. That's what I said in 1998. I think I'd probably be cancelled uh, for saying it now. But the point the point still holds. And yet, and yet. We are doing something here. We were, uh, we want to dramatically transform uh, the Western diet, not to do anything for Western peoples and get them eating less processed food, but simply uh, in order to save uh, the Maldives, the, to reduce, to lower sea levels. <laughs> you are going to be sleeping uh, in an enclosed space with a flatulent vegan flatmate uh, in order to lower sea levels in the Maldives in the year 2200. We'll see how that works. Keep up to date with the past on the 100 Years Ago Show with Mark Stein. A foul-mouthed congressman, a brace of seafaring princes and a rabbi in Tehran. It's October 1921. A hundred years from today Your world news update, the messy aftermath of the Great War is finally getting cleaned up and sorted out. Poland and Germany have both announced their acceptance of the division of Upper Silesia made by the League of Nations. The Bolshevik regime in the Soviet Union has announced that it accepts its obligation to pay most of Imperial Russia's government debts incurred prior to the World War and the Revolution.
And his mother came too to see him off. The Prince of Wales has left Great Britain for an eight-month tour of India that will also include visits to Japan and the Philippines. Other members of the royal family crowded the platform at Victoria Station whence His Royal Highness departed for Portsmouth. Among them were the King and a very tearful and distraught Queen Mary. Plus the Duke of Connaught, the Duke of York, Prince Henry and the Princesses Mary Louise and Victoria. Also present were prominent national figures including the Archbishop of Canterbury, the Archbishop of Wales, Lord Birkenhead, Mr Winston Churchill and Mr Austen Chamberlain. At Portsmouth, the Prince boarded the Royal Navy cruiser HMS Renown and and set sail for Bombay. He is not the only prince aboard the Renown. Its midshipmen include Prince Charles, Count of Flanders, the second son of King Albert of the Belgians. At Britannia Beach, British Columbia, dozens are dead after floods swept 50 houses into the waters of the Howe Sound. A landslide had dammed Britannia Creek for days. And when, without warning, it broke at 9.30 in the evening, a wall of water 70 feet high rained down devastation before terrified residents were even aware of what was happening. So far, 35 bodies have been recovered, but an equal number of persons are believed still to be missing. In the United States, President Warren Harding has spoken at the 50th anniversary of Birmingham, Alabama, founded in 1871 by settlers of mostly English stock who named it after the famous city of Britain's industrial heartland. Addressing an audience of white and Negro residents, the president surprised some by declaring that while the races should remain segregated, there must be equality between the black man and white man in, quote, political and economic life. The president's speech was unfortunate, said Pat Harrison, the Democrat senator from Mississippi. Of course, every rational being desires to see the Negro protected in his life, liberty and property. I believe in giving him every right under the law to which he is entitled, but to encourage the Negro to strive to be placed upon equality with the whites is a blow to the whole white civilization of this country. That means that the black man can strive to become president of the United States. It means white women should work under black men in public places as well as in all trades and professions. Place the Negro upon political and economic equality with the white man or woman and the friction between the races will be aggravated. In North Dakota, the first ever gubernatorial recall election in the U.S. has ended with the defeat of the incumbent, Governor Lynn Frazier, who was blamed for an economic depression in the agricultural sector. Chester Taylor has been elected to the House of Representatives from Arkansas, replacing his father Samuel, who died last month. Congressman Thomas Blanton of Texas has been censored by the House for reading 
exceeding, quote, unspeakable, vile, foul, filthy, profane, blasphemous and obscene language into the congressional record. The language was partially redacted by the government printing office and rendered as, quote, God bleep your black heart, you ought to have it torn out of you, you bleeping bleep of a bleep. You bleep his bleep and he is a bleeped fool for letting you do it. A motion to expel Mr Blanton from Congress was 203 in favour and 113 against, eight votes short of the required two-thirds majority. City Committee in St. Louis and a constable. He was also a gangster who ran the notorious Egan mob, but not anymore. He has been fatally shot outside his saloon on Franklin Avenue by a rival gang in a passing automobile. Uh, with his dying breath, he named James Hogan, John Doyle and Luke Kennedy as his killers. And there are now fears St. Louis is set for a bloody gang war. Rabbi Joseph Saul Kornfeld of Columbus, Ohio, has been appointed as Envoy Extraordinary and Minister Plenipotentiary to Persia. He is the first American rabbi to hold a major diplomatic post overseas. And in Tehran, uh, the Shah and his government are said to be looking forward to welcoming Rabbi Kornfeld to their country. In Guatemala, Honduras and El Salvador, voting has taken place to elect a Congress for the newly created Federation of Central America. This palace is being promoted as the wonder theatre of the world. Balaban and Katz's new 3,880-seat Chicago theatre opened with a capacity crowd inside and even more jostling to get in from outside, requiring mounted police for street control. Built in the neo-baroque French revival style, the theatre is said to be the finest picture palace in the country and boasts 14 romantic French-themed murals around the proscenium, plus a 50-piece orchestra and a 29-rank Wurlitzer played by the so-called poet of the organ himself, Jesse Crawford. The first feature attraction at the new theatre is the first National Pictures production, The Sign on the Door, starring Norma Talmadge. The sign on the door at the Chicago Theatre says, Sorry, we're sold out.
The International Olympic Committee has refused to include track and field events for women in the 1924 Olympics. Now, Alice Milliat of France has come through on her promise to form an alternative organization for female athletes. The Fédération Sportive Féminine Internationale, the International Women's Sports Federation, has been founded in Paris by delegates from France, Italy, Great Britain, the United States and Czechoslovakia. They're calling it, quote, the upset of the century in one of the most surprising defeats ever in American college football. Harvard University has managed to lose six to nothing to a team from Center College. If you're wondering where Center College is, it's in Danville, Kentucky. If you're wondering where Danville, Kentucky is, it's a town of some 6,000 southwest of Lexington. Harvard had not lost a game for almost three years, but Center Center College's star quarterback, Bo McMillan, ran 32 yards for an historic touchdown. I've got ten little fingers and ten little toes down in Tennessee waiting there for me. I never had a baby call me dada. How proud I know I'll be when I hear it calling me. Oh, gee, I'll miss every finger. I'll miss every toe. At home, sweet home, I'll linger. For they'll need me there, I know. Although it only weighs ten pounds and just one day old. I wouldn't give it up for all the world and its gold. For I've got ten little fingers and ten little toes waiting down in Tennessee for me. Ten little fingers, ten little toes, and a solid grip on the throne. The Romanian royal house is looking more secure. King Ferdinand was a complete stranger to the country when he was proclaimed the heir presumptive, but since ascending the throne seven years ago, he has settled in. And following the annulment of his son's first marriage and the consequent disinheritance of his firstborn grandson, he has now become the grandfather of a legitimate heir, Prince Michael, born at Pelish Castle in the Carpathian Mountains. The body of an unidentified Italian army soldier killed in the World War has been selected from ten other caskets to be interred in the kingdom's Tomb of the Unknown Soldier next month. Yan Fu was a Chinese military officer and lifelong monarchist who introduced many Western ideas to his native land, translating for his countrymen such English tracts as John Stuart Mill on Liberty and Adam Smith's The Wealth of Nations. He is dead at 67. Ahmed Raza Khan, better known as Allah Hazrat, was a poet and Islamic reformer throughout India who spent his life pushing back against Wahhabi and Deobandi in interpretations of Islam. He is perhaps best known for the Kanzal Iman, a huge best-selling Urdu paraphrase of the Quran. Allah Hazrat is dead at 65. Bat Masterson was born to an Irish family in Quebec, but came to embody America's Old West. Gambler and gunslinger, buffalo hunter and Indian fighter, sheriff of Dodge City. 
He had a wild life and a very sedate death from a heart attack at his desk after finishing a column for the New York Morning Telegraph. Mr. Masterson was 67. And that's the way of the world, October 1921. This is Mark Stein. On this week's Stein Song of the Week, we have a great standard by the very best of Broadway writing teams. It's kind of surprising that it's hung around because 80% of singers have no very clear idea of quite what the song is about. But jazz legends, Vegas swingers, folk rockers, new wave groups, and the wife of a Beatle all love it. Hope you'll join me for Stein's Song of the Week Sunday afternoon at 5.30 on Serenade Radio. And 5.30pm UK time is half past noon on the East Coast, 9.30am on the West Coast, so a Sunday brunchy kind of show in the Americas. Hope you'll join me. Mark Stein's Last Call. As you know, we eschew the rock and roll bumper music on this show for reasons I've explained. Too many of these talk radio guys have butched up music. And then easy listening opinions. Whereas we have easy listening music and butch opinions, because that's the right way round to do it. Once in a while, though, you come across a bit of the old rock and roll that's as, quote, edgy and, quote, dangerous as its aficionados claim. In this case, literally dangerous. This is a group called the Empires in 1962 with a very attitudinal song. Hey man, you know what I'm going to do to you? What are you going to do to me? I'm going to punch your nose. Punch my nose. Poke your eye. Poke my eye. I'll tear your clothes. Tear my clothes. I'll make you cry. Well, I see you staring at my little girl. And I can see your eyes are starting to wear. But if you like a living in this world, well, you better get your eyes off of my girl. Because I'm gonna punch your nose, I'll poke your eye, I'll tear your clothes, I'll make you cry. I'm a peaceable man, they say And I'd like to keep it that way But if you don't do like I said I'm gonna bust every bone in your head So if you wanna stay healthy, happy and gay Just pick yourself up and I'll walk on away Cause if you mess with my woman, you're sure gonna pay Your nose. Your nose. I'll poke your eye, poke your eye. I'll tear your clothes, I'll make you cry. 
You better get your eye off of my girl because I'm gonna punch your nose. The lead singer of the Empires was a fella called David Black. And not long after Punch Your Nose, he was asked to join another group called Jay and the Americans because one of its members had left. Unfortunately, the guy who'd quit was Jay of Jay and the Americans, but everyone thought it was a good name and wanted to keep it. So David Black was prevailed upon to change his name to Jay Black. And with his chops at the front, they had all the hits they'd never had with the original Jay, like Come a Little Bit Closer and This Magic Moment. Unless you are a canny steward of your brief moment, being a second-tier pop star never works out terribly lucrative. Jay Black went bankrupt, owed the IRS half a mil, and America's dirty, stinking, rotten, corrupt Federal Revenue Agency accepted that he had nothing else to sell off and so demanded that he sell off the rights to his name so that some trusty fundy who likes singing this magic moment could buy the moniker and go touring all over the country as Jay and the Americans. Even for the IRS, that seems a stretch. I had no idea that if I fall behind on my taxes, some dirty, stinking, rotten, corrupt federal revenue agent can demand that I sell my name so that some fellow in Dead Moose Junction can start using it to guest host for Glenn Beck and Mark Levin. What the country! So, Jay Black's last years were pretty stressful. Let's recall him in happier times. David Whitfield was a lovely big-voice tenor who died far too young of a brain hemorrhage while on tour in Australia. And he had a big hit with Mantovani and a piece of cod italiano which Mantovani and David Whitfield's producer Bunny Lewis wrote under pseudonyms. And in 1954, it got to number one in Britain. It was a hit all over the world and it sold three and a half million copies. And about a decade later, Jay and the Americans thought, gee, this would be great to show off the second Jay's fabulous voice. This is Cara Mia which is Italian for Up Yours IRS. Oh, sorry, my mistake. It's Italian for My Beloved.
giving it some welly on the falsetto and getting to number four in America, number one in Canada, David Blatt as Jay Black, the second J of Jay and the Americans, dead at 82. It's the weekend. Lots of good things for you at Stein Online. If you didn't catch me in for Nigel Farage on GB News, do check it out. It seems to have been received as a fairly lively hour. If you haven't yet heard our just-concluded tale for our time, Jane Austen's Northanger Abbey, do give it a go. You'll find it over at our Tales for Our Time homepage. Have a spiffy weekend. Stay safe, stay free. Join us next time for another edition of The Mark Stein Show. The Mark Stein Show is a production of Mark Stein Enterprises and Oak Hill Media. All rights reserved.